Well, this is the first Sunday of 2022, and so what, what we're going to do, Will mentioned it, but, but let me just, by way of explanation, and maybe this is just for Will and I's sake as, as much as for anyone. Uh, so as a church, we're committed to God's Word. We gather, we think Sunday is the climax of, of the life of the church, the, the corporate gathering, and we believe the preaching of God's Word is the climax of the climactic event of God's people and the, the, the preaching and, and teaching and exhortation from God's Word. So, so we're committed to the Scriptures and um, 51 weeks out of 52, we preach passages, messages from Scripture. But what, what has become a bit of a, a, a pattern, a tradition, and I think it's a good tradition, it's okay tradition, is that, that we take one week of the year uh, between Christmas and New Year's, wherever it falls, and, and we preach, or, or I preach, not a sermon, but a message that focuses on a life of a faithful saint of the past. Okay, and so, so we've looked at Lottie Moon. Some of you remember several years ago we looked at Lottie Moon. Last year we looked at William Tyndale. And so we're going to continue that this morning. We're going to look at the life of John Newton. We're going to see a story of grace. And so we're going to focus on John Newton. Um, but, but I just want to, for, for my sake, tell you why I think it's okay for us to do this every once in a while. I think we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that the Bible itself says, here are individuals, here are things that happen in their lives, and, and you ought to emulate them. Okay, so, so biography, what was part of the, the, the book of Hebrews, and then in 1 Corinthians, the, the Apostle Paul would say, well, you should be familiar with the things that happened to the Old Testament saints because it happened to them as an example for you. In other words, you need to know, familiarize, familiarize yourself with it so that you can learn from their lives, their, their mistakes. And so that there's a pattern. I think there's a precedent for this. Um, and, and so I, I think, and it's the early church, the early church, think of the, the Apostle Paul, his story inspired many in the early church and continues to this day. Uh, and so my hope is that as we look at the life of John Newton, we might be amazed by God's grace, not in some general sense. I mean, this is a song that's sung millions of times a year. People sing Amazing Grace, which, which we'll see was something that John Newton wrote, but, but, but people can sing that song and not really get it. And people say, oh yeah, grace, amazing grace. Yeah, general, amazing grace. Yep, yeah, it's great. But I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I want us to be amazed by God's grace in the very specific sense that God's grace saves sinners like us. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? That God would save me? Make me part of his family? And so if you're here, I don't know what your background is. I don't know what's happened this past week, this past year. But it's not a coincidence that we're going to look at the life of a man who was a wretch of all wretches, who experienced God's saving grace and was made useful for his purposes. And so that's the hope for all of you. There's hope. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. There's hope. Because God's grace transforms, saves, sustains, delivers all these things. And so I want us to be amazed by God's grace this morning. So let me pray for our time, and then we'll, we'll look through an outline, and we'll, we'll learn, we'll get to know uh, the old Newton. Let me pray first. Oh, Father, I, I ask that you'd use this time, this biography, this, this life of a, a, a saint of the past to encourage us, to challenge us. And so I pray specifically for those here who, who are discouraged, maybe feeling unworthy of your grace, unworthy of a part in your family. Maybe it's a past, maybe it's sins or, or secret sins or public sins or past broken relationships, I pray that this life of, of this brother would encourage everyone here. So, so use his life to speak even though he is dead. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Our outline is really simple, and we're going to walk through this. And again, there's a lot that I'm going to try and fit in here, so I may talk really fast. Just, just be okay with it. Try and keep up. Um, there's a lot that I'm not going to say also, okay? But this is a, a, a fascinating life. So, so the outline is John Newton lost, John Newton found, and then John Newton remembered. Okay, so lost, found, and then remembered. So that, that's the outline we're going to follow. So we're going to begin, first point, John Newton lost. So John Newton lost. He was the only child of John and Elizabeth Newton. He was born in London in 1725. His mother was the greatest spiritual influence of his early life. She was an active member of a dissenting church, which is simply a church that broke away from the official church of England. And so she was an active participant in, in, in the separatist church. And she'd always have John, her son, her only son with her in church. She, she knew her Bible and she had hopes and dreams. John Newton would later say that, that, that her only son would be devoted to ministry. That was certainly one of her prayers for, for many uh, years in his young life. Along with his mother, there's a pastor named David Jennings, who's the pastor of that church that they attended, who's an influence on John Newton. Also, there's another well-known man named Isaac Watts, who's a famous hymn writer. Maybe you've heard of some of his hymns, but he also would interact with the young Newton because he was connected to that church there. He knew John's mother. So his mom was a spiritual influence. His father was a sea captain who was often away at sea, didn't have much of an influence on his son. There didn't seem to be a, a religious zeal or commitment. His father was often away, um, but he was known as a strict father. He was a sea, sea captain who was strict and expected his son to be a certain way. John's life would have certainly taken a different route had his mother not died of consumption or tuberculosis. The, there are different uh, theories on, on what killed her, but she was only 27 years old and her only son was six and she, was, she passed away. And so young six-year-old John Newton lost his mother and lost the spiritual influence in his life. John's father was away at sea when his wife died and he returned a couple months later. He spent a little amount of time mourning and remarried quickly. So he, he remarries and this, this new wife has three other children. And so John is kind of cast outside the family circle. There's a, a new family with three other kids. And so John is, is, is a bit on the outside and so, so that affected him, certainly. His, his father, it wasn't long after that, his father says, well, it's time for my son to, to get on the ocean. So he, he's gonna follow my path. He's gonna be a seafarer. And so John Newton, the younger, makes his first sea voyage at age 11 in 1736. And so he would go with his father. So they would go to sea together. There were five more voyages that they would go on together. Didn't seem like their relationship was, was benefited from these voyages, but this was what he did with his father. In these voyages, Newton would, would gain valuable experience on the sea, but more significantly, he'd also begin to fall into serious moral decline during these years. As he's going on these voyages, he's, he's with sailors. No offense to any of our, our Navy veterans in here, but sailors have a reputation that is often accurate. And so these seafaring men had a negative effect on young John. And so his father, worried for his son's fitness as a, a future seaman, uh, found a job with, for John with a friend of his. And so, so he, wasn't, he, he wasn't comfortable sending John to sea, so, so he set up this job in Jamaica with a friend where he would manage a sugar plantation of a friend in Jamaica. So that's John. He's got a job to go over to Jamaica and manage a sugar plantation. Before he set to sail, he received a letter that would eventually change his life. He didn't know it at the time. But for the first time since her death, he gets a letter from his mother's family. So his mom's side, they, they haven't talked to him, probably because 
that his father remarried immediately. So, so they don't want anything to do with that family. But he gets a letter from his aunt, and he goes to, to visit her and her family before he set sail to Jamaica. It just so happened, he almost didn't go, but, but his, his plan, his travel route took him right near where they lived, and so he visited there. And it's there on that visit he met his, his future wife, a, a young lady named Mary Catlett, who was known as Polly, and from his first sight, he said he felt an affection for her that never abated. She was only 13 at that time, so, so his feelings were, were internalized. He didn't express them, but he was head over heels for this Polly from the get-go. And so, knowing he's on his way to set sail for Jamaica, Newton did what any love-struck teenager would do. He dodged all responsibility. So, so he's got to get to port and set sail for Jamaica, so he doesn't go. And so he said, I can, I can stay a little bit longer. And so it goes from, from one day to several weeks, and he stays three weeks with her family and misses the ship to Jamaica because he, he has to be around this, this Polly and her family. Newton said after meeting her, quote, I considered everything in new light. So, so maybe you know, maybe you're familiar. Maybe you don't remember now if you've been married a long time. Maybe you don't remember the, the, the first meetings in, in these early days where you're love struck and everything changes. Well, that was John Newton. He couldn't imagine living so far away in Jamaica for the next four or five years while his love was at home. So he didn't go. This doesn't sit well with his father, his strict father who has set up this appointment, this job in Jamaica. So his dad is not happy with him, but his dad does get him another, sh- another spot and this other spot is on a ship. And so he's going to serve as a common sailor, at which time his movement away from God and the things that his mother had taught him continued. So he's back on a ship, moving further and further away from what his mother taught him and away from the Lord. His love for Polly doesn't abate, so when he returns from some of his, one of his voyages, he plans another visit to, his family's ha- to her family's house. So he's trying to, to, to work things out so that he can uh, be approved to marry this, this young lady. And this is in 1744, he goes to visit her, and this visit doesn't go according to plan because Britain is on the brink of what would be known as King George's War, which is Britain and France. And, and so Britain in 44 is on the verge of this war, and they need lots of soldiers, they need lots of sailors. And what was in a practice in that time to, to, to get soldiers for the nation's cause, they didn't have a draft, they had these things called press gangs where you have these, these, these battalions of soldiers, of sailors who would walk around port towns looking for young, able-bodied men. And if, if they found you, they would press you into service. You had no choice. They would, they would arrest you and take you onto a ship and say, now you're in his royal majesty's service. And so John Newton, during this time, he had a lot of thinking to do. And so he was out one night walking around, mulling his future with Polly, and he was caught by this press gang, and he was pressed into military service. And so he became a Navy sailor, part of the, 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 the Royal Navy. And what was really appealing to the Navy and to this, the, these, these uh, members of the, the Navy is that he had a, a lot of experience on the sea. And so he was elevated immediately. He's not just a, a common, but he's an advanced sailor. So he is on a ship in his majesty's service. The Harwich was his ship. So as a new recruit, he endures much hardship, and, and his reputation that, that begins to be built is that of disrespect and becoming a constant pain in the sight of his captain. No one liked him. He was, he was this boisterous, arrogant, proud young man. 
At one point, when the ship was at port, Newton applied for a one-day leave. So, so he's on his way to service, and, and he's, gonna, he's in port, and he says, I need one day. He wants to go visit Polly's family. He knows they're close, but what those that he's applying for leave from don't know is that this trip is going to take way longer than one day. He stayed away for almost two weeks. His one-day leave turned into two weeks, he, he, and he spent it with Polly's family. And so this didn't help. Again, his, I, I don't know how his captains didn't treat him more harshly, but they didn't. He comes back, but it'd get worse because then the HMS, HMS Harwich, which stands for His Majesty's Service, Harwich, the ship, so it had been, initially been, been scheduled for a one-year deployment just to, to, uh, to the, maybe the Middle East, um, but the, 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 the mission changes, and now they get new orders, and they're going to be gone for, to the East Indies for four to five years. And so here he is in service, and he thinks, I, I can make a year without Polly, but now it's four to five years. He, he can't take it. He's devastated, and he's trying all he can. He, talk, he contacts his dad to try and get his dad to pull some strings, but, but he can't get out of this service. And so he does what is a no-no for anyone who's ever been in any military services. He deserts. There's a port, and, and he, gets, he gets assigned this mission, and he, he goes with no intention of ever accomplishing this mission, and he just leaves. He's like, I can make my way to the town, to this town, and I can get back to Polly's family. And it goes well for maybe a day or two, but then he's found. There are actually men, groups of men who are looking for deserters, and they find young deserting John Newton. And an acceptable penalty for this crime at this time, which was not uncommon, was hanging. Like he could have been killed for this. This is a, a, a criminal act, deserting his, uh, his appointment. But again, the ship's captain, for whatever reason, decided that, that against that, and he, he simply, that wasn't simple at the time, he, he had Newton publicly flogged on the deck, and then he was degraded in rank. And so then he, along with the ship, headed out to what would, what would be a four- to five-year voyage. And so this ship, as it's making its way, it stops in 1745 at a port in Madeira. It's kind of a final stop before they make the, the long trek across to the East Indies. And it was here that this Newton finds his way out of service. It is a divine appointment because at this stop, their ship accounts another ship, a merchant ship. And this merchant ship had two impressed young men on it. So they had two men that had been impressed into naval service. And so they, this merchant ship interacts with this, this naval ship. And these two men need to come over here, which means two men over here need to go over here. That's how it worked. And so Newton hears about this switch, this exchange taking place. And he goes and, and uh, pleads with the captain, please let me go. And the captain agrees, probably because Newton had become such a pain and a distraction to him and his, and his ship that he sends Newton over there. So Newton is free from naval service and now he's on a merchant ship. And so just like that, his, his prospects change. But things get worse for Newton because now he doesn't have the strict rules or expectations of the Royal Navy. Now he's free to be himself, and he was not an endearing person. And so this merchant ship known as the Pegasus was well known. So, so one thing that Newton was well known for on this merchant ship was using his talent for songwriting to, to mock and ridicule the ship and its captain. He would, he would make up songs that, that mocked and made fun of his superiors, and then he'd get others to sing along and, and make fun of the captain. Newton would say of himself during this time, I was exceedingly vile. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. And so, so he is blatant in his sin, but he's getting everyone else to do it also. He has no conscience at this time, it appears. 
And so once he gets on his way to Africa, he, he's afraid of, of getting exchanged back. And so he decides, I'm going to stay in Africa. So when I get there, I'm going to stay there. I'm going, to, I'm going to be done with my service. I'm going to stay in Africa. And it's here along the Guinea coast of West Africa that Newton is first introduced to the African slave trade. He meets a man named Amos Clow, who when, when he sees Clow, this is a successful businessman who, who made money from trafficking slaves on the western coast of Africa. And so Newton sees, well, here's a successful man. Here I can pursue this business and be rich like him and le- live at leisure. I mean, at this time, it must be remembered that, that there's over 30 to 40,000 slaves being transported from Africa to the Americas per year. And so every person involved with every step of this slave trade was, was in for money. There's lots of money to be made. So Newton starts working for this man, Amos Clow. It wasn't long until his lofty dreams and expectations were shattered. Life working with Clow was not all that it seemed. And one of the main reasons was this man's African mistress named P.I., who immediately resented Newton and treated him in many ways worse than the slaves. She hated him, and so she treated him poorly. And so this, this didn't help Clow's opinion of Newton, but then Clow also received word from a, from a competitor that Newton was trying to steal from him. And Clow, though he knew Newton, and though Newton pleaded his case, this was a false accusation, Clow didn't believe Newton, but he re- believed this competitor and then punished Newton harshly. And so here he is on, on the coast of West Africa, an employee, but, but he's chained up. He's given a pint of rice per day to live off of. And he's not given any protection from the elements, whether it's storm or rain or whether it's the, the scorching heat. He is chained up and forced to be outside 24 hours a day. This was the low point of Newton's life. Interestingly, a constant companion for Newton, what he, what he would claim was kept his brain, his mind working, was a mathematics textbook that he, that he learned and he studied over and over and over during that time. But he was delivered from Clow, so he, he, there was this time in, in this low point, but he's delivered from Clow when another slave trader moves to the island and, and sees Newton and sees that he's not being used for anything by Clow. So he asks Clow, can, can I buy Newton from you? Can I, can I make him an employee? And Clow, after eventually, or initially declining, eventually gives in and parts ways with Newton. And so Newton now has a new job. He's freed from, from this, this harsh treatment. And this new employer owns several slave factories on the coast. And he would employ, he'd hire white men to oversee the factories and the slave trade. And so this gives Newton money and freedom to live however he wanted. So remember, he's now living on the coast of Africa among natives uh, overseeing this slave trade industry. So he quickly settles in among the natives of the islands. And it's not long before he assimilates their habits of behavior, which included, among other things, sexual promiscuity and witchcraft. And so he's living there, and he's becoming part of the culture. All the while, back home, his father had received several letters from John. He, when he was in the, the, the dire straits with Clow, he sends letters to his dad saying, this is my condition, please help me. And so, so as, as Newton's fortunes have changed, his dad is getting these letters and his father knows lots of people who are going to Africa. He says, hey, if you're there, look for my son. Just, just, he's on the west coast of Africa somewhere. Ask for John Newton. If you see him, just bring him home. So, so he sends whoever he knows that's going that way. That's, that's the message he sends. Well, there was one ship that was headed that way called the Greyhound. The Greyhound had already been to several islands and, and they're doing their business, whether it's merchant or, or slave trade, I'm, I'm not sure, but, but they'd already asked several places about John Newton. No one knew anything about him, right? The coast of West Africa is a big place. 
But the captain of the Greyhound is passing by and he sees a fire offshore. Now, this was the, the normal signal. This would be a, a, a trader saying, hey, I'm open for business. And the, the captain of the Greyhound needed to get going and, and almost passed. And so I'm not going to go. We don't have time for that. But on impulse, he said, he decided to drop anchor and go. And so he goes, and to his surprise, as well as the surprise of the man who started the fire, who was open for business, wanted to do some trading, is asked about a John Newton, who he knows exactly who John Newton is and knows exactly where he is. And so this, this captain of the Greyhound goes and introduces himself. He finds John Newton. But now things are different for Newton. He's living the good life. When he'd written his father, he would have welcomed escape, but now he doesn't want escape. And so he's not going to go, but the man knows the, the, the pressure, the urgency that he was sent. And so he makes up a lie and says, Newton, you have a great inheritance at home waiting for you. You need to come back. And so Newton is skeptic. He says, well, where's the papers? And the, to which the captain says, well, I, I, I forgot them. I was in a hurry, but, but you need to come back because you have money waiting for you. And that is, that is the main reason, along with Polly, the thought of prospect of marrying Polly, that Newton goes with this man on the Greyhound back home. Not as a seaman or a naval recruit, but now he's going as a first-class passenger of the captain. So he's going to have the easy life on the way back. And it was this trip, this long voyage home, that transitioned John Newton from lost to found. And so on this voyage, it's 1748 now, the Greyhound is on its final leg home, and Newton happened by, by chance or by God's providence, as he would say, he found a book on board that was a Christian classic uh, by a man named Thomas A. Kempis called The Imitation of Christ. It's a, it's a classic. And so he starts reading this book on the imitation of Christ and, and all of his upbringing, all the things his mother had taught him, all the things he had learned began to cause him to ask questions. Well, what am I doing? What do I believe? And it's this book that, that starts awaking him out of his current mindset and shocking him to his senses. And he goes to bed on March 9th of 1748 thinking about serious things. He hasn't resolved anything, but, but he's starting to question things in his mind when he goes to bed. Well, early the next morning on March 10th, he's awakened by the force of a violent sea that, that, that was breaking up the ship. There's this, this massive storm. And the cabin that he's sleeping in on that morning, it's filling with water. The ship is going down. And, and so chaos is breaking out on the ship. And Newton, here's the call, all, all hands on deck. So he's going up to the deck. He gets up and the captain says, Newton, I need a knife. Go back and get a knife. So Newton goes back down the ladder. As he's going down, there's another guy coming up. And this guy, as soon as he gets up, a wave comes, wipes him overboard and kills him. And so Newton sees that. He doesn't have to think about it at the time. But as he reflected, he would say, God spared me. There's no reason that I should have gone back down for a knife. But he goes back down for the knife, goes back up. And, and these, this, this ship and its crew are seeking to, to save the ship and save their lives. They don't know how to swim. And so they're unloading cargo. The ship is in disrepair. And so they weather the storm. And, and the next day, pessimism is, is, is abounding on, on board the, the Greyhound. No one is optimistic. Pessimism prevails. And so they're, they're, they try these last-ditch efforts to, to repair the boat. And they're using blankets and other stuff. They, they've lost a lot of their, their materials and so they're trying their, their last-ditch effort to save lives. And, and Newton, in conversation with the captain, found himself saying, if this doesn't work, the Lord have mercy on us. And while this may not seem significant to us, to John Newton, this was a drastic change, that he would even think to ask for mercy. He would say, I hadn't desired mercy for years. And so he recognized, once again, he has this spiritual conscience and he has this desire for mercy. He says, if this doesn't work, God have mercy on us. 
And so this, this is a change that takes place, and it continues when, when Newton finds himself praying for the success of their ships, their attempts to save their ship. So he's praying. Now, now this is maybe foxhole religion. Maybe you've heard that. When, when things are really tough, you'll pray for anything, right? But this was Newton's prayer, and this is what he understood as his conversion. He looked back on that event, that storm, as the date of his conversion, on the Greyhound in 1748, after a brush with death, Newton would say, at this time I began to know that there is a God who hears and answers prayers. And so Newton is now found. So he's gone from lost to now found. Now it'll become clear that just because he's converted at this time, his life was not neat and clean. That's one of the things about, about these heroes. Like Newton still had some, some evil things in his life and he still carried out some, he hasn't even gotten into the slave trade yet. Okay, so it's not a neat and clean thing. The Christian life, to become a Christian, doesn't mean everything goes away and everything's picture perfect and, and black and white and clear. It's a messy thing. But Newton had experienced God's grace and he began to change this lifelong process of, of maturation, of Christian maturity. Is, is, he's on the path now. And so when he returns from, from the trip, he doesn't have any job prospects. He, his promised inheritance wasn't waiting for him. And he's convinced that his marriage to Polly was no longer an option. He's not worthy. He doesn't have a job. He, he, he can't ask his parents, his fa- her family, for permission because he doesn't have any prospects or a future. Well, his old friend, the one that he had, he had neglected to go to Jamaica for, this, this same man, Joseph Manistee, who had set up that job, offers Newton another job as a ship captain. And so he doesn't take the captain position because he needed some more experience, but he does sail on this ship called the Brownlow as the first mate. And so, so now he has a job. He's a first mate. And this ship, the Brownlow, is built specifically, was built specifically for slave trading. And so he sets sail. He's, he's getting ready to set sail on the Brownlow. Uh, he visits with Polly's family and secures what appears to be an agreement of marriage. So, so she's going to wait for him until he gets back. And so he sets sail to Africa on the Brownlow. This is his first slave trading voyage. And for the next eight months... He'd be going up and down the coast, bartering and trading for slaves to transport back across the ocean. That's what he did. Now at this time, slavery among Christians, among, among all people, this was not a, a moral evil. It wasn't recognized as that. So, so we need to be careful in how, how we view this, not to excuse what he did, but, but this, this was not a moral dilemma at large in the culture. It would, it would become later, and, and Newton would lead the charge there. But at this point, he is... He has no, no convictions about what's going on. And so he's, he's up and down the coast trading slaves for the Brownlow. And it's during this time also, Newton began finding himself falling back into old habits. He found himself falling away from the progress he'd so recently made. He had no moral ethical qualms regarding the slave trade. And neither did he refuse to take part in the mistreatment and the abuse of the slaves. And so one part of his story is, is the, the, the abuse of the female slaves, and Newton at this time would take part in that. In his own words, during this time, he had followed a course of evil which a few months before he should not have supposed himself any longer capable. He says, I had little desire and no power to recover myself. This is the real struggle for Newton as he's back, as he's in this setting but instead of going headlong into these habits and patterns again, Newton seems to have been experiencing genuine conversion because although he does fall into sin again and again, he struggles against it. And now there's, there's conviction, there's remorse, there's a desire to, to fight against what he would call Mr. Self. And he would eventually become more and more adamant against it. 
so that when he completes his first voyage on the slave ship, he could say that he had, for the most part, peace of conscience and his strongest desires were for the things of God. So, so even through this, this, this dynamic, this, this conflict of, of spiritual uh, warfare, Newton seems to be making progress. Well, the next major event, 1750, he marries Polly, his wife. February 11th, 1750, the, the, he returns on the Brownlow. The, the owner of the ship says, Newton, you can have your own ship. You can be the captain. You're ready. So when I get a ship available, I'm going to send you as the captain. He marries Polly. And with a little money and a young wife, he sets sail as the captain of a slave ship called the Duke of Argyle. So now he's the captain. It's his second slave trading voyage, but now he's the captain. And the voyage of the Duke was anything but calm. There's a plain revolt by three of the crew members, and there's a violent uprising by some 200 of the slaves that they're transporting, all which he would record in his diaries, which were just part of the hazards and horrors of the slave trade. It was not abnormal. In fact, the, the vast majority of slaves who were transported would, would be killed, would, would die whether mistreatment or punishment. And so this is part of his, his experience. The second voyage ends when he comes back one year later, a little over a year later in 1751. He's reunited with Polly and again waiting for the next ship to head to the west coast of Africa. So now he's, he's made two voyages. He's waiting for his third. He goes now in 1752 as a 27-year-old, as a ship captain, not on the Duke of Argyle, but now on the ship called the African. And again, he deals with, with the, the normal hazards and horrors of slave trade. And at this point, the slave trade is, is booming and, and all the ports are extremely crowded and the price of slaves are, are increasing. And so he would make one more trip on the African, but that trip did not meet the standards expectations of the owner of the ship because there weren't slaves to be had. So he comes home empty-handed and, and not filling his quota. But again, he, he has no problem. He's, he's set to go on his fourth voyage as a slave ship captain, his fifth total, he's set to go when God delivers him or saves him or spares him or intervenes because two days before he set to sail on his fourth voyage as a slave ship captain, he experienced a stroke or a seizure of some type. He, he's, he's having tea with his wife and for no apparent reason, he, he seizures, he falls on the floor and he lies there motionless except for breathing. He's continuing to breathe, but he's motionless for almost an hour. I mean, this is a serious medical emergency. I mean, imagine his young wife. They, they never know, know exactly, it was never determined what exactly caused it. And there are no long-term effects from this other than, at least physically speaking, the long-term effect was that Newton's career as a slave ship captain was over. So his doctors and his boss, the, the owner of the ship said, you're, you're not fit. So this was his way out. He didn't have to go back. He was beginning to, to be more, have more concerns about what he was involved with in the treatment of the slaves and, and this whole process. So, so now he is a, he's, he's freed from doing this. And then he finds job. He's appointed as a surveyor of the tides in the town of Liverpool. So th this is basically a, a customs officer. So ships come in. He, he has a little rowboat. He's rowed out. He looks at the ship. He sees what they have. And he collects the customs, the, 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 the taxes on it. So that's what he does. That's his job. They're in the town of Liverpool. The benefit of this is he had his own office right there at the port, and he had a lot of free time. So he would read and study and pray, and this was a great time of growth. This job, it should be noted, was secured for him by Joseph Manisty. Well, this was 1955. He, he, at this point, he meets the, the well-known famous preacher George Whitfield, who would, who would be a part of his life in, in the coming years. But he had this period of stability in Liverpool, he had a job, wasn't great pain, but he had a job, and, and he could study, and he could build relationships. 
He could, he, he could grow in his Christian faith. But he begins to enter this season of restlessness. He's sensing a greater urgency to serve the Lord and didn't feel like his current employment was the way that he was going to do that, was the long-term answer. And so in 1758, he's convinced that God was calling him to serve the church. And so he begins pursuing ordination. So he wants to be ordained, and he wants to be ordained in the Church of England. And so this process from 1758 would be six years so there'd be lots of trials. It's a roller coaster. He says, this is what God wants me to do and starts pursuing it. And there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. One of the first obstacles, but not very significant, was his first sermon. He's invited by a friend to, to preach in the town of Leeds. And here's what he said. He, he gets up to preach and he doesn't have any notes. He's going to do it completely extemporaneously. And here's what he says about that time. Before I had spoken 10 minutes, I was stopped like Hannibal upon the Alps. My ideas forsook me. Darkness and confusion filled up their place. I stood on a precipice and could not advance a step forward. He says, I stared at the people and they at me. Not a word more could I speak, but was forced to come down and leave the people. Now listen to this. Some smiling, some weeping. My pride and self-sufficiency were sorely mortified. So that's his first ever sermon. He's like, what am I doing? This may not be the path for me. But, but that wasn't the only trial. On a larger scale, he pursues relationships with other leaders in Liverpool and around England, and he's pursuing this official call to ministry. So there's this process that has to be followed within the church. And so there's these steps, and, and at every step of the way, he, he'd take the first step, he'd be rejected. No, you can't do it. No, there's not an opening for you. No, you can't. Now, some of the reasons may have been his lack of official education, but the Church of England made exceptions. I mean, Newton had taught himself Greek and Hebrew and had read widely many different branches of theology. He was self-taught, and he was, he was as, as well-versed as any, as any of the, the, the clergy of the Church of England. So I don't think that's the real reason. I think the real reason, so it seems, was his relationship with the group of people known as the Methodists. So he had gotten to know George Whitfield and, and the Wesleys and, and this, this group of, of religious enthusiasts, is what they were called, in, in, a, in a negative way. And so the Church of England has enthusiasts and said, we, we, cannot, we cannot mingle with those Methodists. And so a lot of people say that's why Newton was, was stonewalled time after time after time, because he was friendly with these people. And not only them, but the dissenters and the Baptists and the Presbyterians. And so he's confronted with numerous, so, so as he's pursuing this ordination with the Church of England, there's a number of other denominations saying, hey, come with us. The dissenters or the Presbyterians or the Methodists, John, New or John Wesley says, hey, come ride itinerant, be an itinerant Methodist preacher. We'd love to have you. And he persisted in his pursuit of ordination within the Church of England. He felt like that's what God had called him to. And so the path to ordination opened when he met a man by the name of Thomas Howis. This was a man for two reasons was significant. First, Howis was the man who convinced Newton to write his first book which is called An Authentic Narrative in the Life of, of John Newton, which is a series of letters that he, he, he exchanges with Howis, knowing it's going to be published. It was initially a, a, an anonymous um, letter, anonymous narrative, but people knew who it was. But, but so it's this interaction with Howis that he writes down his experience. And this is what would lead him to, to, prom, to, to celebrity, to prominence. People would hear his story and, oh my goodness, this, this slave ship captain is now a, a Christian pursuing ordination. So, so Howis is influential in, in getting that book published, but more importantly, he also knows rich people. And he has a friend, the Earl of Dartmouth, who, who has, a, who has uh, the authority over specific parish towns, and he can appoint who he wants. And so this friend is asked by the Lord, Lord Dartmouth, asked Howis, hey, do you want to be the parish vicar here in a small town called Olney? 
how us wants to be, but he knows Newton's need is great. So he says, no, 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 ask my friend, John Newton. And so John Newton is asked, and he then is, has a place, and then he has to be ordained. So he has to find a bishop, and again, that's a long story, but he finds an, a, bishop, a bishop to ordain him. So he has, he has a, an appointment and a place, and so now he is officially ordained in the Church of England. He secures his holy orders in 1764. And so his journey to ordination is complete. And so him and his wife settle in the small town of Olney, and Newton was now secure and could give himself fully to the ministry before him. He was well-received by the townspeople in this small town. He quickly became an attraction. And one of the, the interesting things, funny things, is that he wouldn't walk around in the robes that the Church of England clergy normally would. He, he, he thought his, his naval jacket was more comfortable. So he'd walk around town as the, as, the, as the clergy in his naval uniform. He was not normal. Um, but more importantly, he was a unifier in that town. There are many Methodists and dissenters found in Newton something appealing. He didn't say, no, you're not welcome here. He would minister to them and their kids and to the young people. And so he set about a ministry of preaching and teaching and visiting the households within his parish there in Olney. He would preach two sermons on Sunday, followed by a lecture on Sunday evening. He would also have meetings during the week for adults and youth and children. And his ministry quickly was, was thriving. And they had to build a, a whole nother level in their, 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 their chapel so that they could accommodate the many people who would come. He, his only struggle would be financial because at that time, the, 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 the former minister of Olney was retired but still received a third of Newton's salary. That's a great deal, right? <laughs> That's great. So Newton is, is not receiving a lot and so he struggles financially but he's thriving in ministry and he would stay in Olney for 15 years. And two things from this time to note is a relationship with a man named William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper but it's pronounced Cooper. He would be one of the most famous English poets in history. But William Cooper would become Newton's best friend, a, a source of constant encouragement to him and Polly during their time. And, and Cooper's life is worthy of a sermon on its own, mainly because he struggled intensely for his entire life with severe melancholy, which today is known as depression. He was a, a, an extremely depressed man. In fact, his life was numerous times he tried to take his own life and, and numerous times Newton would be there to, to encourage him and, and, and convince him not to do that. But these two men were intertwined and, and in Newton's time with Olney, um, Cooper would, would help him in his ministry. He would be kind of a, a, a volunteer clergy with help, helping Newton bear the load that he was under. But the majority of their time, what they're most well known for is their time in writing hymns together. And so these, both of these men are gifted and they write hymns together, and they would, they would put together what's, what, what would become a well-known hymnal called the Olney Hymns, which was well-used there in England and then actually became popular in America. But that's published from their time together, and Newton writes the vast majority of the hymns, but, but uh, Cooper is part of this process. Now, some of the hymns he wrote, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear, be gone unbelief, let us love and sing and wonder, all of which some of you may have heard some of those. But the most famous one, the one that surpassed them all, was a hymn that he wrote on January 1st of 1773. So it's fascinating. Newton, as he prepares to give sermons, so, so there's a New Year's Day sermon. Every New Year's Day, there's a sermon given. And what he had started doing for about two years prior is that when he preached sermons, he would write songs to help his people learn the truths or the passages. Because the, the, the Book of Common Prayer and, and the, 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 the translations they had, it wasn't easy for his, his poor people or his normal people to, to get the message. So he would write songs practically to help his people learn the scriptures. And so in his sermon preparation for January 1st, 1773, he wrote a hymn to teach his people 
to, to remember a specific text, which is actually the verse that I read later from, or earlier from 1 Chronicles 17, where King David says, Who am I and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? So he's, he's preaching on that text and he writes a song to help them. Certainly he saw similarities between David and himself, the, 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 the wretch to the, to the delivered, for the lost to found. And so Newton set to putting the truth of the prayer of King David into lyric, and he did so by writing what, what, what would be a biographical hymn. The title of this hymn, maybe you all think you know it, the title of this hymn was called Faith's Review and Expectation. How many of you heard that hymn? So that was the original title, Faith's Review and Expectation. It would later be known as Amazing Grace. So, so he writes Amazing Grace for his, his small little parish in Olney, for them to learn the prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 17. And at that point, this is just, it's not even that good of a hymn. It's hymn number 41 in the only hymn book. And this hymn actually never gained popularity in England while, while Newton was alive. The, the hymn book gained reading and distribution, but he had many better hymns than this one. But this hymn took on a life of its own. In fact, it wasn't until in 1790 this hymn was published in America, but it's not until 50 years later in 1835, which is three decades at Newton's dead, in 1835, the lyrics of this hymn, Amazing Grace, were put with the tune that we come to know. So it wasn't even put with the tune that we know until 1835. And while a whole message could be dedicated to that hymn, what's fascinating is that the tune that we know, no one knows where it came from. No one knows the origin. So a man named William Walker from South Carolina, was, he, he, he was a, a, a brilliant man, and he, he knew this tune, and he matched it with the lyrics of Amazing Grace. So he deserves a lot of credit, but the tune no one knows. But everyone that, that studies this and looks at this says it is most likely that this tune was derived from the African-American slave culture of the American South. Because this man from South Carolina, that, that was a vast majority of his repertoire of the tunes he knew. And so what an amazing thing to think of this tune probably came from, from the slave culture of the South that's matched with this hymn that came from the slave trader who was saved and the two were put together. Now, again, that could be a whole message of its own. But this song, which becomes some of a spiritual anthem of America, began in the small town of Olney from a pen of a pastor who simply wanted to encourage his congregation. And that, that is pretty amazing. Well, Newton, since his time in Olney coming to an end, as his effectiveness began to wane and other, other opportunities began to be given him. I mean, he's, he's blowing up. He's a celebrity. People are trying to get him to come, but he's, he's convinced this is where I'm supposed to be. Well, that changes and, and more opportunities are coming. And in 1779, he leaves the town of Olney and goes to London, to the city, to a church called St. Mary Woolnoth. So, so his life and ministry transfers from the small town of Olney to the, to the bustling city town of London. And it's way different. But he loved the... The, the bustling city in ways that he didn't love the small town. He was content there. He said, the Lord had me in the small town, I loved it, but now he has me in the bustling city. He was content in London because of the opportunities that were presented to him there. Much like in Olney, people flocked to London to hear the famous John Newton preach. But not, not only that, London offered Newton an opportunity to influence the movers and shakers in society. This was London. This was the city center. This was, this was where the Bank of England was. This is where all these, where Parliament met, where the, the, the movers and shakers were. And so Newton had an opportunity to interact with them and to influence culture in ways that he hadn't in Olney. And so he, he began networking and, and seeking encouragement among like-minded Christians I mean, Newton at this point was somewhat of a sage. He'd become, become an evangelical leader. And he drew many younger people into his circles and he invested and mentored them. 
He started this, this one group called the Eclectic Society, which is a group of evangelical leaders and influential businessmen that met monthly and spent time in prayer and then discussing certain theological topics or specifics of ministry and, and pressing cultural issues. They just got and encouraged one another once a month, and he loved this, and he was used greatly in this. But he's also reinduced to someone who he would forever be linked, which was a man named William Wilberforce. So Newton was friends with Wilberforce's mother, in Oni, and young William had spent time in Oni with Newton. So he knew him as a young boy, but now he's grown up. Wilberforce is a member of parliament, an MP, and, and, and he's had this conversion experience. And so he, he seeks out Newton. It's fascinating to read. Wilberforce, no, we can't, I can't be found out. I can't, it can't be known that a member of parliament is meeting with an evangelical pastor. And so, and so he writes this letter. I got him, and it's very um, kind of spy-like. And so, so they have this secret meeting at night. And, and what Wilberforce wants to know, he's had this conversion experience and he doesn't know what to do with the rest of his life. He, he's a member in parliament, but he says, I think I should serve the Lord and, and be in ministry. I think I should make my life useful or, or be a, in seclusion somewhere. Tell me what to do. And so Newton says the issue is not whether you serve the Lord as a, as a faithful Christian or a politician, but you can do both and you should stay right where you are and serve the Lord as a statesman. And that's exactly what Wilberforce does. And so in December of 1785, when they have that meeting, the path for Wilberforce is set, and he sets himself on a path of abolishing the slave trade in England. And so Newton was encouraging Wilberforce, use your position to influence and influence to serve God as a Christian and a statesman, convincing him these two callings are not incompatible. And so Newton's time in London became intertwined with Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade. And so, so now he's, he's in, and now he's, he's convinced this is, this is a great evil. This must be abolished. And so now his friend, Wilberforce, is leading the charge in Parliament. And, and this is attempt after attempt, and, and it can't, they, they keep getting stonewalled, and the, the votes don't pass. To, to aid in this, this attempt, the abolishment of the slave trade, Newton, in 1788, writes a small pamphlet, which became very famous, that was entitled, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And so this pamphlet is, is published by the Society for the Abolition of Slavery, and it's di- distributed widely. And it's used to open the eyes of everyday Londoners who, be, who, are, who, are, who are exposed, probably for the first time, the, to the horrific realities of the African slave trade. So he's writing detailed accounts of what life is like for the slaves. In fact, the first thing he says, why people should be concerned, is because English navalmen are, are, are dying. So, so he knows how to play that game. Yeah, they're they're losing some of their own because of the, the, the circumstance on these slave ships. But then it goes on and on about why these slaves and what they're going through in their experience. And it, it is graphic and is horrific. But, but it's mass-produced and it's, it's given all throughout London. And so he, he could speak from experience. So, so people heard him. The fight for abolition was long. It wasn't finished until Newton was an old man on his deathbed. But he was a key voice. And it's him being in London, his relationship with Wilberforce, that he would eventually be called as a witness before the Privy Council in this very decision and uh, this count, this case, and he was a key voice in leading to the eventual abolishment of the slave trade. One seventeen eight, and we're almost done. We're nearing the end. You're, you're bearing with me. Yeah, I, I enjoy this. So, so at least one of us is is being edified. But in seventeen eighty eight, the health of his wife took a turn for the worse, never to recover. Her entire life was filled with health problems. But here, a tumor was found in her breast that the surgeon deemed inoperable. So, so she, uh, we assume it was breast cancer, a, a form, something like it. 
And so it's, she's unable to be operated on, and she refuses to take the, the medicine that, that would ease the pain. And so the, the next several years were extremely severe in their suffering, both for Polly and for John Newton. And in 1790, his wife died. Their marriage was a sweet marriage, and, and Newton dearly loved his wife, and which, again, that, that was a, a huge part of his life, which we couldn't touch on here. But her death was a blow to him, but it also enabled him to be free of his concern for her. He had been caring for her and worried about her, and so now she's gone, and now he gives himself fully again, into the ministry. In fact, he preaches her funeral a week after she dies, which some people say was, was not appropriate. But he did. And he knew exactly what, what passage in Habakkuk he was going to preach on. One of his Bibles, he, he had never preached on that because he said, this is what I'm going to preach if the Lord takes my wife before me. So it's the Habakkuk, the end of Habakkuk. The, 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 the fig fades and the flower doesn't grow. I will trust the Lord. Um, so, so that was his sermon on the, the, at the funeral of his wife. Um, the, he would, his, his life, he would, he would still have several more years uh, preaching, maintaining his relationships, writing letters. Um, he actually had a relationship with his and Polly's adopted. He adopted two of Polly's nieces, and one named Betsy was a great encouragement to sort, support him in his final years. She and her husband would, would, would move in with, with Newton and, and care for him and be a great source of encouragement. And then on December 14th, 1807, John Newton died at the age of 82 at a time when average age expectancy was 45. And so he lived to be an old, old man. And it was in one of his final conversations that a man named William Jay recorded a conversation with him. And this is where, where you've heard this before, but this is from William Jay says, quote, his last visit with Newton. He says, he was hardly able to talk. And all I find that I, that I had noted down upon my leaving him was this, quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. So that, that, that's what Newton was saying at the end of his life. And his, his epitaph, which was on his grave, still there, which is now in Olney, fascinating. He was buried under Saint, in London, under the church, but then the subway comes in decades, maybe centuries later, and they have to move him and his wife's tomb, or, or their, their, their remains, to Olney. So he thought he was going to be buried under St. Mary Walnuts for, for indefinitely, but the, the London subway had other ideas. But on his epitaph, which is now in Olney, he wrote himself, he wrote it, and it says this, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. So that was his life. That was his testimony. And so just quickly, Newton remembered, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna zoom through these just applications Newton's life gives us a picture of living life in God's world. So living life in God's world, divine providence was the lens through which Newton viewed the whole world. He looked back at his life and saw event after event where he said, God spared me. God did this. God did this, whether it was escaping death or being found on the coast of Africa or being rejected from our nation or, or any other thing or a relationship, regardless of circumstance, he was content to trust the Lord because he knew that God was in control. And one example, I have to share this quote. Uh, he had this brush with death when, when he, so the mayor of the town of Londonbury has a shooting day. And so I guess everybody goes and they shoot. That's what they do. And so he's there and he accidentally discharges his gun. And here's what he says. Quote, it went off so near my face as to burn away the corner of my hat. He concludes, and so he's looking back and here's what he says. A powerful statement. Thus, when we think of ourselves in the greatest safety we are no less exposed to danger than when all seems conspiring to destroy us. 
The divine providence that is sufficient to deliver us in our utmost extremity is equally necessary in the most peaceful situation. And that's a man that's safe and secure in God's divine providence, his sovereignty. Newton teaches us to live in God's world with confidence and trust. We also see from the life of John Newton a picture of pursuing God's will. His life was a life of persistence. When he was convinced of God's clear will and when that that will was confirmed by others in his life, he pursued it. And he persisted when, when he was called into ministry. He persisted. He persevered. When he was convinced that the slave trade was a moral evil that had to be stopped, he persisted. He pursued it. When his dear friend and wife both went through severe mental trials, he knew he had to encourage them. He had to be a source of of perseverance. All this because he knew God's will was clear and he pursued it. And when you are pursuing God's will, nothing can stop you, is what Newton would say. He also, his life shows us a healthy picture of denominationalism. So he lived in a day when denominationalism ruled and Newton stood above the division. He was willing to work together and build relationships across these denominational lines. He didn't budge on his convictions. He was a convicted, convictional Church of England man. So he didn't budge on that, but he also recognized there's a big tent nature to the Christian community. And in this sense, he was a true evangelical with with friends. In fact, some of his greatest letters are between him and John Ryland, who's a Baptist pastor. And he gave himself to, to John Ryland and encouraged him and ministered to him in relationships also with his ministry. In fact, there's a funny story. He has this kid's ministry in Olney, and he starts giving prizes to the kids, help them learn scripture. And, and all the Baptists or all the dissenters are, are getting all the candy. And so his own people, the Church of England parents are saying, you got to do something. All the Baptists are getting the candy. We want our kids to get candy. Right? But he didn't care. He just wanted the kids, whoever they were, to come and be ministered to. But then finally, and this is, this is the main point, is that we see in the life of John Newton, a story of grace. <clears throat> and this is the point. This is what I want to close on. John's Newton, John Newton's story is the Christian's story. I mean, it is. John Newton's story is the Christian story. He once wrote to, wrote to a friend, grace, free grace must be the substance of my discourse to tell the world from my own experience that there is mercy for the most hardened. Grace, free grace. That, that was his experience and that was his message. Newton never forgot the saving grace that God had shown him when he least deserved it, when he was not looking for it, God saved him, God intervened. And that salvation by grace alone is what drove Newton in all that he did. And so every story, every story is a story of lostness, blindness, and wretchedness, followed by sovereign grace that finds, gives sight, and saves. Newton's story is your story and my story if you're a believer here. The theme of Newton's life is that the grace that saved him was the grace that led him was the grace that would bring him all the way home. Grace review and expectation. Grace was never something that the Christian, that Newton would outgrow or outpace. His life before Christ was wretched, and his life after Christ at points was wretched, but his hope from the beginning to the end was the grace of God. And so this is why the hymn is so well loved. It's biographical, but it's not just his biography, it's our biography. And as we sing it, we, we resonate It's the story of the Apostle Paul. It's the story of John Newton. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus crying by the roadside. It's the story of every Christian. And so in this sense, the best lesson for us to learn from John Newton is the story of amazing grace, to be reminded that God saves sinners. And so my hope personally, my hope for us corporately, is that in this coming year, that this will be a year where we hear and experience the two great truths simultaneously over and over and over and over and over and over that we are great sinners, but that Christ is indeed a great sinner. 
Let me pray for us.